Kabbalah and coffee. This is a beautiful Sunday morning, at least here in, in the ATL. And it's great to have you guys uh, join. Okay, so the topic today, I think I called it Happy Pigs. I think that was the title that I called it. So, <laughs> and you're probably wondering, like, what am I talking about? I'm going to get there in a second. I want to actually start in the Garden of Eden for a moment. So, you know, the, that's, the Bible begins with the story of paradise, which doesn't last that long, by the way. If you're, uh, if you're keeping score at home, right, it's like paradise for a minute and then, you know, boom, then real life. But there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of meaning and a lot of really deep significance in the paradise story, in the Garden of Eden story, which I want to go through. And I'm going to tell you why I'm, why I'm going back to the story. Really, I want to focus on the fallout. Like what happens after Adam and Eve sin, eating from the tree, the forbidden tree, the tree of knowledge. So what happens in the aftermath, specifically, what happens to the serpent? What happens to the snake, the serpent, that gave the idea to Adam and Eve to eat from the forbidden fruit? We're going to get there in a second, but let me reset. So God creates, in the biblical narrative, God creates the world. Um, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. So far, so good. Everything looks okay. There's light and darkness. There's, um, uh, there's waters are being separated, lower waters, upper waters, wa oceans, dry land, vegetation, birds, fish. It's uh, sun, moon, and stars. I skipped that in the middle somewhere. It's Gavaldic, it's, which, Yiddish is, which is Yiddish for fantastic. Everything is lovely. In fact, every day of creation, the Torah says that God saw what he made and it was good. So clearly, everything so far per plan, per spec. Good. And then what happens? Day six rolls in. And first thing, God creates the animals. And then... God pushes the envelope one, one, more, one more step, and God creates Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. Now, if you look back in Genesis, I'm not going to pull up the verses right now, but if you look back, um, you may notice that it only talks about one creature that God makes, um, but the way the Torah describes it is that God created Adam Male or the first person, male and female, which according to Jewish tradition means that actually the first human being was, um, had really two parts. They were, it's kind of like imagine two people fused back to back. So like a face forward and a face one way, a face the other way, kind of fused with, with sharing a back, if you will. And it was a male and a female. And then God divides them so that they can join together face to face. And that is Adam and Eve. Well, God tells Adam and Eve, and there's a lot of stuff that happens that first day, but a few hours into to their creation, so God instructed Adam and Eve, well, mainly at, God, God initially told Adam, of all the trees of the garden you can eat, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that tree, off limits. Don't eat from that tree. Now, just to take a half a step back, or just to take uh, a quick moment here, Psychologically, if you tell somebody, you know, you can have everything you want except for one thing, it's 
a guarantee, I was about to say almost guaranteed, but it's not even almost, it's guaranteed that the one thing they will be fixated on is what they can't have. That is 100% the psychological truth. You can give somebody access to whatever it is, but the forbidden fruit, euphemistically forbidden fruit, is going to be the most enticing. In the language of our sages, it says, Mayim genuvim nimtakim. It says, stolen waters are sweeter. Right? It's like that, which is, I love that phrase because it's so true, right? So the waters that are yours, legit, ugh, boring, tasteless. Stolen waters, ugh, there's a thrill, it's exciting. So God says to Adam and Eve, again, mainly to Adam, God says to Adam, so all the trees are yours, whatever you want, eat, enjoy, it's, 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 it's a garden, to have fun, except this one tree don't touch. So the story goes that Adam tells Eve, don't eat the tree. He adds on something. He says, by the way, don't, not only don't eat from it, don't even touch it. And then they, go, I guess, go their separate ways. I mean, not like, you know, really separate ways, but they're not necessarily next to each other browsing the garden. They're, they're off on their own kind of, you know, meditating and, and wandering. Upon which the serpent approaches Chava, approaches Eve. And the serpent says, hey, look at that tree. Doesn't look great. <laughs> By the way, we can all relate to that serpent, right? That's the inner voice that we have. But then it was an, out, an, an external voice. Kabbalah says that after the sin, the serpent goes inside. But initially it was outside. So, so the serpent says to Eve, hey, that looks like a great tree. I bet it would be delicious. And she says... You know, I actually can't, can't eat from the tree. I can't even touch it. He says, why not? Well, because uh, Adam said that God said that if we even touch that tree, we're going to die. So the Medjur says that the snake, the serpent, actually pushes Eve against the tree. And Eve, like, freaks out. And the snake says to her, the serpent says, you didn't die. Maybe, <laughs> just maybe, it's not dangerous. Maybe that was just the ploy for you to not eat from the tree of knowledge because that tree will give you knowledge and maybe God doesn't want you rivaling his knowledge, right? Maybe God wants you to keep you down a notch so that he's the only one with knowledge and you're the one without knowledge, so that he can be God and you can be less than, and that's why he's scared, and that's why he told you not to eat from the tree. So, you can either accept your, you know, just, just give in to the hierarchy, you can totally bend to, you know, whatever the whims of, you know, whoever that, that being is, or you can engage in an act of self-empowerment. You see how convincing the serpent... I'm actually convincing myself right now as I'm saying it. That's how convincing it could be. And so, Chava, Eve, decides to taste from the tree. And not only that, she then gives her husband, Adam, also from the tree to taste. And he eats, upon which God says, um, I need to see all of you guys. 
Come on in. Come on in for a meeting. We have to have a schmooze. They get called into the principal's office. Now, they know they're in trouble. How do we know this? Because it says that Adam and Eve, they were hiding in the garden. They were trying to hide themselves. And God says to Adam, Ayeka, where are you? And literally, he is trying to hide behind some trees. And, you know, it's kind of like the idea when we know we've done something wrong, we try to hide. There's some shame, right? So there's that, that emotion of shame. And how, do I, how can I hide myself right now? Where do I bury myself in shame, right? Trying to, like, get away from the spotlight. Of course, there's no escaping the spotlight or really oneself, if we're really being honest about it. Um, and God has a schmooze with all three, and there's fallout for all three. And the Torah describes exactly what happens. But first things first, I need to mention one thing. What is this notion of knowledge? A tree of knowledge, what a tree can give knowledge, what fruit can give knowledge, what kind of knowledge is this? And this is something that we've spoken about in, we've spoken about in other contexts in Kabbalah, at Kabbalah and Coffee, and other courses we did a, we did a course in the fall, one of our JLI courses, called Secrets of the Bible, where we did six weeks on classic biblical stories, and we covered this one, and we, we got into this topic as well. So if you're familiar with this, it'll be a review. If not, buckle up. What is knowledge? What, what, what do we mean when we say it's a tree of knowledge, or, or what is knowledge anyway? In Hebrew, knowledge is dat, and dat doesn't just mean when you know something, it means when you are connected with something. There's a difference between knowing something and feeling something. Knowing something abstractly or feeling something really. That is not just knowing, that is connecting. It's feeling, it's not emotional feeling, but it's intellectual feeling. It's, it's, it's connecting with that thing. Which is why, by the way, this is a, si- a quick sidebar. Second. Which is why in, in the Bible, intimacy is referred to by the euphemism knowing. Right? Again, Adam and Eve. The Bible says, the Torah says, that Adam knew Eve, and then she became pregnant and gave birth to a child. <laughs> well, how does that make sense? He knew her and she got pregnant? Since when is getting to know someone, right, a cause for uh, conception? How does that? So again, it's not that in Hebrew is not just knowing, it's connecting on a deep level. So, what does it mean that it's a tree of dad? It's not just a tree of knowledge, it's really a tree of connection. Or using perhaps uh, language that is much more, I don't know, that makes much more sense to us, it's a tree of experience. It's a tree of feeling. It's a tree of awareness. It's a tree of self-awareness. Until then, and this is going to tie into the fallout, which is really where I want to head with this. Until that point, which was only like three hours into, the, into their creation, but until that point, they were completely and utterly in sync with their creator, with their purpose, with their source. There wasn't any friction between creator and creation. It was almost like, imagine like audio cables running from, running from a source and there's no interference, and the music is coming out perfectly, you know, pure from those speakers. 
There's no interference, no disruption. It's flowing perfectly. It's flowing seamlessly. That's how it was from the beginning. And then Adam and Eve, due to the prompting of the serpent, decided that they want to start feeling themselves. They want to start having their own experiences, their own awareness, not just be in the moment, in the zone. So there is a, what's the word I'm looking for? Flow. There's a modern psychological term that's called flow. What is flow? Flow means, it can mean different things, but one of the understandings of flow is when you're so locked into an experience that you completely are dissolved in that experience and you're not even aware that you're in the experience, that's how into the experience you are. Does that make sense? Right, you're so locked into it, you're not standing above and observing yourself doing something. You're so involved, everything else completely fades away. You're not even aware that you're having these, the experience. That's how much you're, you're locked into the experience. By the way, this is an ideal state for creators, for artists, for musicians, for athletes, for perhaps scholars even, right? It's an ideal state to be in because it means that there's no separation. There's no, there's no separation at all between self and, and, and the moment and, and the larger activity. There's no, dis, there's no um, dissonance. There's no interference. Getting back to the speaker, you know, sometimes speakers can do their own thing, right? I don't mean like public speakers. I mean like a speaker system. You plug in a speaker and the wire's a little bit frayed or the wire's a little bit, you know, whatever. And meanwhile, it's, uh, you got to bend it at a certain angle. It makes noise. It's not, it's not perfectly seamlessly, you know, uh, flowing. The, the sound is not flowing through perfectly. It's not a perfect example. It's the first one that came to mind. The point of flow is that you're in the moment. So Adam and Eve were created in a state of flow. And then the serpent disrupts that. And the serpent says, well, wait a second. Don't you want to feel yourself? Don't you want to be aware of what you're experiencing? Don't you want to think about how you feel about all of this? Right? Sound familiar, right? Let's talk about things. Let's, uh, let's, let's observe it. Let's think about it. Let's explore it. And by the way, it's not wholly evil. This is not evil. But for where they were supposed to be, it wasn't where they were meant to be. And that's why, by the way, the, the biggest fallout from that sin is death. Right? God told Adam and Eve, or again, Adam, don't eat from that tree. The day you eat from it, you're going to die. Now, they don't die on that day, but they begin to die on that day. Because on that day that they eat from the tree, which is not just eating fruit, but it's really asserting one's self-will in opposition to a higher will, which means at that moment the flow is broken. Well, once that flow is broken, once that pure connection is broken, death is a possibility. If life comes from the source and is flowing through Adam and Eve seamlessly, they can live forever. Just like the source is eternal, they, if they're channeling purely, if they're, if they're in that flow state and they're perfectly channeling the divine life force, right, God's infinite eternal life, they could theoretically live forever. The moment they assert self, 
which is by virtue of them choosing to do something contrary to what God told them to do or not to do in this case, the moment they assert self, which means the moment they assert their own experience is the moment that they put up a screen. It's the moment they put up a separation, a barrier between themselves and the life force. And that's the moment that death begins. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Now, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, and, and, and it's so clear when, when you connect with, with artists, with, with, the, um, with teaching. And, right. And the, yeah, and, and the school that is so different when, when the people experience and uh, integrate, uh, put together the, the knowledge and the, the experience. But now I understand the, the, the idea of the, the pure connection. Why you, you, it's great, it's great. Thank you, thank you. I will say this also, it says in Kabbalah, very important that a student is, when do we learn? When we're completely in that zone of, of, of absorbing. The moment we start thinking about ourselves, like, oh, I understand it. The moment we start thinking, we become aware of our understanding, we disconnect from the learning experience. It's crazy because you can actually try it. I would say try it at home, right? You can actually try it where, you know, you're reading something or you're listening to something or you're watching something and, and you're completely absorbed and you're completely into that moment and you're learning, you're absorbing, you're, 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 you're taking in. And then you can actually force yourself to like think about, oh, I understand and start like actively, consciously processing it on your end and at that moment, you realize that the last 30 seconds or 60 seconds or 10 minutes, you completely missed because you were thinking about how you were understanding it. Yeah, and, it's, yeah it's the same when, when somebody asks you, do you believe in, in God? And it's, it, it's a difficult question because it, it's like you feel God. Because if you believe, it's difficult. You have to understand. Right. It's, it's, it's through the mind. Right. But you feel God. It's, it's, you are living the, the experience to connect. It's the connection. Good. Well, very well stated. David, jump in. Yeah, just a quick question. If it's too much of a detour, uh, you can postpone it, obviously. But why did Adam add the additional requirement about not touching? It's a perfect, great question. Adam was doing what sometimes we mistakenly do, which is thinking that if we're going to, you know, thinking that the best way to educate is to add on layers and to be more protective, to protect the other. But meanwhile, it could wreak havoc. Um, you lose trust that way. And we ha what, what's important is, is to realize that he had good intentions, but that the notion of misrepresenting always gets in trouble. Which is why, by the way, I should say with Judaism, when the rabbis come along and say, you know what, look, the, the Torah says that this is not good, but we think that we have to put a fence and like, you know, create a buffer zone, you know, so that you don't even get close to that, you know, big thing. They can do that and they do do that, but they always are clear to say that this is a rabbinic buffer. It's not the original law because the moment you don't do that is the moment, again, you lose trust, but then someone says, okay, well, you lose trust, you had trust, you lose trust. But it's more than that. It's because you just, you, you blur the boundaries and you no longer know what is absolute, what's not absolute, what's real, what's not real. 
Adam was trying to, you know, in the trying to like think of a, of a, of a good English word. I'm, I'm going to say like the Yiddish word, from. He was trying to be like very, um, you know, religious to, uh, to his wife, saying like, oh, don't even touch it. And he thought that way for sure she wouldn't eat from it. And meanwhile, that set up the... If he, if he had even said this is an additional requirement. Yes. This is rabbinic rather than, you know, then she could have... She would have known that when he pushed her against it, that that... Obviously, it didn't do anything because that wasn't. There was no fallout when she touched the tree, because yeah, um, yeah. It's it's important even even in our own lives because because we do the same thing. You know, we also create you know layers on things, and then we dissolve those layers. But the moment we get into the habit of dissolving layers, right? Then we could dissolve the layers, um, like the lines that are really important. Does that make sense? It's kind of like, so it's very important with parents and educators that, you know, we think we're doing good by the other person by, you know, maybe giving more and more so that they stay in a, in a safe space. But, you know, when they push the boundary when they, and they realize, well, there's nothing actually dangerous there, that could lead to other stuff. So it's, and, and yeah, there's a lot of different thoughts and applications running through my head right now, which I think would take us too far off on a tangent and, could be a little controversial, but we have to be careful as a society, as communities, as individuals, families, whatever, when we draw additional lines that may not be 100% necessary for the sake of protecting others or even ourselves, to be careful because when they erode and you realize no harm, no foul, well, then that just sets up the expectation that all lines are equally erasable. Anyway, there's, there's much more to talk about on that topic, but it's, uh, that's, all right. But so, so the general fallout, back to the garden, the general fallout is um, death, which I mentioned is death is not a punishment. It's a natural consequence. It's like if you unplug an appliance, it, it's, it doesn't have, it doesn't have this electricity flowing through it, right? You unplug the refrigerator, it's not going to cool and freeze your stuff. If you have, um, oh, right before Shabbos, we were baking something in one, whatever, in, in, in one of our, um, like a cheesecake, we have our, our main oven is, is, is uh, fleshig, is meat, then we have a small dairy um, little convection uh, countertop oven. We were doing a Shabbos morning, baking a Shabbos morning cheesecake before Shabbos, and um, the, uh, the breaker tripped. We had a few things plugged in, and the breaker tripped. And I had to reset it. Anyway, bottom line is, the pa if the power is no longer flowing through it, guess what? You ain't going to have cheesecake. So it's just not going to work. It's, it's not, it's not going to bake. Now, don't worry. Don't worry. We got everything back up and running. All was, the, the day was saved. But here's the point. Adam and Eve, when they unplug, even slightly, I'm not saying like they, they said to God, forget it, we're out. But even slightly, even slightly, that created enough of a dissonance, enough of a friction, interference where the life force doesn't perfectly flow through and death is an inevitability. At some point, the, the, the force, the life force just doesn't flow through and, and, that's, and at that point, death, death, death is an inevitability. But I want to talk about also the specific fallout for, three, for the three parties, Adam Eve and the serpent. And again, the focus, the real focus is going to be on the serpent. But first, Adam, Eve, and then serpent. So what happens with Adam? In addition to becoming mortal, 
Adam, God says to Adam, now at this point, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat. Which means you have to now work hard to exist. Before this sin, again, it's, it's, like, it's, it's the same concept. Everything was in the flow. Everything was seamless. So Adam's food, the earth itself would on its own produce food for Adam and Eve for humanity. It would nature itself would be at the ready for whatever a human being needed. That was the way things were created. The moment the human, human being says, I want to have my own experience. I want to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out of the flow to, have, to be in my own head, to be in my own perception. At that point, there's a breach that happens and the earth is no longer naturally flowing toward the human being, which means that if you and I want to eat, we have to plow the field, we have to sow the field, uh, field we have to water, uh, uh, you know, and everything that has to take place, harvest, and then take the, let's say, the wheat and grind it into flour and bake it into bread. Now it's a whole geshef. It's a whole business to try to get any food. And if we want to earn money, oh, for sure, it's complicated and it takes effort. Again, initially, it was supposed to be a seamless experience where a human being would not have to worry about, you know, sustenance and existence and all that stuff. Nature itself was going to flow to support human life. But at this point, now we have to fight for it, and that's what happens with Adam. What happens with Eve? Primarily, Eve is now told that when she bears children, it's going to be painful, and it's going to be the product of difficulty. Um, again, it's the same concept. Originally, life was meant to flow naturally. So life was going to be produced, more life was going to be produced in a way that was seamless and, and, and perfectly, you know, without any hindrance, without any difficulty, without, without any labor. And I mean that in the kind of um, both literal and, and figurative sense. But once Adam and Eve sin, again, there's a breach that happens. There's a breach. And now life, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging. Bringing life, I mean, bringing life into the world now it's going to be challenging. Now it's going to be difficult. Now it's going to be painful. Just like with Adam, you know, extracting life from the earth is going to be painful. Eve bringing life into the earth is now going to be painful. It's no longer seamless. It's the difference between something that's seamless and something that is with difficulty. And all of that is a product of the sin. Well, what happens with the serpent? And this is really... Um, really the, the focus of today's conversation. What happens with the serpent? So interesting. Apparently, the serpent, prior to the sin, walked upright on two legs or something like that, a, similar to a human being. The serpent walked upright. And the greatest indication of this is because in what God says to the, to the serpent, in the curse, if you will, to the serpent after the sin, uh, God says, because you told Eve to do, to go against my will, etc. So now, on your belly you shall crawl. That's what God says to the serpent. Henceforth, you will need to crawl. You, your existence will be crawling on your belly. And of the dust of the earth you shall eat. 
which means I don't I don't know that it, that 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 snakes actually eat the earth. My understanding is they eat what is in the earth, which they're crawling on. Right? They eat from the things that are on the earth where they're crawling. Okay. So the commentaries ask a question, and you might also have this question. I think it's a very powerful question, and it's very important that we explore it. The question is, what kind of curse is this? What kind of curse to the serpent is this? You tell the serpent, you're going to have to crawl on your belly, and your food is going to be right there. Oh, what a curse. You kidding me? It's like telling somebody who wants pizza, you know what your curse is going to be? You're going to be destined to <laughs> hanging out in pizzerias. It's like, uh, and what's the curse again? It's like somebody who likes um, sushi. You know, what it, you know what's going to happen to you? you? Everywhere you go, there's going to be a sushi store. And no, it's not about like eating too much sushi or too much. That's not. Again, God says to the snake, you're going to be on your belly and then you're going to eat from the earth. And that's your curse. What kind of curse is that? I hope the question is coming through because the answer is really powerful. There are many different answers given, but I want to focus in on one that I find specifically and particularly meaningful. And this one answer has it that to not need is the greatest curse of all. To never need, to never be in need is the greatest curse. See, sometimes we think that the greatest blessing would be to have everything that we need. We don't need anything. Oh, that would be amazing. The problem is, although on some level that's certainly attractive and on, on, some, on, a, on a strong level that, that makes sense, but on a deeper level, that's not actually true. And let me explain why. Human beings are created in a way, naturally, to be thirsty human beings, to be craving human beings, and not craving, but, but beings that yearn, beings that desire, beings that strive for something. So to put a, well, I know we're talking about the serpent now, not human beings, but to put a human being, let's talk about human beings for a second, in a situation where they don't need anything, everything's set, Although it sounds like paradise, ultimately it's going to be extremely frustrating and extremely stifling. I mean, think about it. Think about a person who works for years and then says, you know what? Why am I working? Because one day I'm going to retire to the beach. Take that person who worked hard and accomplished a lot and put them on a beach. How long can they last on that beach? Not long. It might be good for a day a week, maybe a few weeks, but at some point, they'll go out of their minds. It's like, I need to do something. I need to feel accomplished. It doesn't necessarily mean having to go back to the same job, but being productive, creating challenges or taking on challenges, that is something that is inherent to the human condition. And the way we understand the curse, at least this understanding of the serpent's curse, is that God tells the serpent, you're going to be on your belly. All the food is going to be there. 
You'll never need anything. You'll be as satisfied as can be. And that's going to drive you crazy. You'll have everything you need. You'll never need to strive. And you'll feel like you're not doing anything. You'll feel meaningless. We can apply this. Enough about the serpents. Let's talk about human beings. Take a human being and take away any need. And you've now taken away a major element of what makes a human being alive. What makes us alive and vibrant. It's almost like, I'll give you another example, a relationship example. Take away need in a relationship and the relationship really doesn't, uh, really is missing an essential ingredient. In other words, if I don't need anything and the other doesn't need anything, so it sounds like maybe the healthiest platform for a relationship, like no one's imposing their needs on anyone else. No one needs anything. They just can be. They can be and enjoy. But at the end of the day, Kabbalah teaches that chesed, which is the first fundamental energy of a relationship and the first soul energy, chesed, this idea of loving kindness, is all about extending to the other and, in essence, fulfilling their needs. If they don't have a need, I can't give. If I can't give, so then what am I doing in the relationship? Again, a relationship that's predicated on me filling my needs that's unhealthy. But a relationship should be I'm giving to the other. If there's nothing to give, so then it, it takes away an important element from a relationship. Yeah, David. And, and how do you compare this to the state that Adam and Eve were in before they ate from the tree? Because they were not in Excellent. Excellent. On, on, according to this understanding, the sin, counterintuitively, turns out to be the greatest blessing for the human being. Right? Almost. Because now it creates us in a state of need where we are disconnected and we need and we desire and we don't have and we're out of the garden, we're out of paradise and we're trying to get back in and now we can really be alive. So again, it's kind of counterintuitive and maybe it seems like it's going against everything that I've been building up to, but I think, but this, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that I was going to mention it, but in, the, in, in my mind, I was thinking exactly what you're saying, which is that there is this curse of the serpent is really the blessing for the human being. The serpent's going to have everything. And the human who had everything is now going to have struggles. But that struggle is the core of life. Because, you know, the truth is that maybe, you know, had that not, never happened, maybe the wiring of a human being would be different. Maybe we wouldn't need to, to pursue. So, you know, it's, it's really hard to say, you know, you, know, um, you know, if it didn't happen, how would things look and that sort of thing. But I will say this, that the way it exists now, the way you and I exist now, is very powerfully um, in a state of, very powerfully in a state of, um, in a state where the way we are created now is that there's a yearning and there's a need to need. There's a need to feel productive. There's a need to accomplish, a need to climb mountains. There's a need to set goals and to accomplish them. And to, you know, when we get to that, when we achieve that goal, to, to throw, you know, to throw the line further and to achieve the next thing. There's a need to feel like we don't have, like we still need to accomplish, and that keeps us going. I've said this so many times, 
you know, the Rebbe was always against retirement. But, and I, I mentioned this even a few moments ago. But like, it's not that you have to keep on working in the same job, but it's the idea that a person has to be productive. And to be productive means that we are setting goals and achieving them. And this idea that I don't need anything, everything is good, and I've accomplished everything, there's nothing left, there's no, no hill left for me to climb. That is when a person, unfortunately, God forbid, begins to decline. When a person feels like there's nothing else to achieve, nothing else to accomplish, no other hills to climb, that's when typically a person slides backwards. Um, it doesn't mean they can't set more goals and, and, and pick themselves back up, but it's very important to realize that at the core of human nature is a need to need. A need to be needed, a need to need others, a need to need other things, a need to achieve. That's part and parcel of the, of the, of the experience. In other words, just to frame it maybe differently, serpent versus human being. So we're going to now frame this as holiness versus unholiness. And I know holy or unholy is a very vague term because that can mean many different things to many different people. Some people think, you know, holy is, you know, I don't know, whatever. Everyone has a different image of what holiness is. But in, in this context, I mean, um, what is godly or what is aligned or what, is, what speaks to our purpose versus what's not. So holiness is yearning, is thirsting for something, is... Is, is the drive for achievement. Unholiness is contentment. That's why, and this is a very important insight, I think, that's why on the night of Passover, the night of the Exodus, God tells the Jewish people, still in Egypt, I want you to have a meal with the Paschal Lamb, right? Remember the Paschal Lamb? The Jews were meant to have this, um, you know, this, um, are we allowed to say the, the Last Supper? Maybe, I don't know. Whatever, different meaning of that. Last Supper in, in Egypt, and what was the last meal in Egypt? It was a Paschal Lamb. Now, if you recall, how does the Bible say that it was meant to be prepared? How were they supposed to prepare their, Pasch their lamb for the Paschal Lamb? Who remembers? God got really involved. God communicates to Moses to get really involved in the method of preparing the Paschal Lamb. Who remembers how they were supposed to make it? Who's got it? Feel free to unmute and jump in. Roasted. Roasted. Excellent. The Torah says it has to be roasted directly over the fire. No pan, no water, no cooking, no baking, no, no searing. It has to be directly over the fire. And the commentaries look at this and they wonder, is God such a micromanager? That God says, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to eat lamb, but... Only one way to make it. It's like, what if I like my lamb, you know, a pot roast or pot whatever, like, you know, with braised in, in wine? No. It has to be broiled, sorry, roasted over directly over the fire. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, how in the world could that even be a thing? So the Kabbalists explain, it's explained in Kabbalah, that it's all about fire. What is fire? Fire is passion. Fire is, I'm going to use a different word here, that's actually, I think, a very good word, is restless. Fire is never content. You put fire in one place, it never says, oh, I'll just burn out right over here, no big deal. I'll just you know, do my thing and you don't have to worry over there next door. No, 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 it's fine, I'll just, just do my little thing. No, fire is, fire is always restless. Fire is always agitated. 
Fire always wants to go on to the next thing. Fire says, all right, I burnt this. What's next? Let me burn something else. And so on the night of the Exodus, God says, I want you to taste freedom. I want you to understand what it means to be human. What it means to be free. Listen to this, counterintuitive. What it means to be free as a human being is to be restless. And you're saying, what? Freedom is restlessness? No, freedom is contentment. No, it's not. Contentment is when the human story ends. It's when productivity ends. It's when waking up in the morning and, and being excited about the day ends. Contentment is the, the, is the kryptonite of, human, of, of humanity. Contentment is, it seems like the best. It's like, oh my gosh, if I could only get to a place where everything is good and everything is perfect, that would be amazing. And we would climb the walls. We would go bananas because that's not what the human being needs. It's what we might think we want, but it's not what human beings need. And this was the message that God was telling us by dictating not just what we eat, but how we were to eat it on that night of freedom, the night of the Exodus. God is essentially telling us, if you want to be free, I can take you out of Egypt and solve your problem, your, um, your slavery problem. But if you really want to be free, you have to always strive like fire. You have to be restless and striving. And it's in the striving that you'll really live. It's in that striving that you'll feel the most alive. It's in contentment where you'll feel, uh, you'll feel, I mean, we all know what it's like, right? You're on vacation. Yeah, you know, like when you sleep in, when you have like a day off and you're sleeping in and you feel more tired than the days that you need to wake up early and get something done, right? It's like, it's like the weirdest thing. It's like, what? I'm more tired when I had more sleep? Yes, because it's not tired. It's a sense of lack of, focus or purpose or productivity. And I don't only mean that this is tied into work. I want to be very clear. I know I've said it twice. I'm going to say it three times now. It's not, I'm not necessarily saying this means nine to five work. It could be anything. It could be researching a topic, writing a book, starting a podcast, right? It could be, you know, poetry or art or music or whatever it is, right? It's not about necessarily work, you know, vocational work, it's about having a goal, striving for something. So again, here's the core idea. It's in the striving. It's in the restlessness. It's in the pursuit that we feel the most alive. And I know that you know what I'm, that, that all of you know what I'm talking about. We all, the most alive you and I have ever felt was when we were chasing something. We felt the most alive, right? That's, that's the way it is. And the least alive we felt is when we got it. <laughs> it's when we got it. It's like, oh, great. Now what? That's it. Which brings us back to our text. Which brings us back to our text. The Talmud says something pretty remarkable. Well, really brings me back to my email, which is related to our text. It says, there's none... One second. Let me, let me get the actual original quote here. 
because it's, it's super priceless. You got to love the Talmud. The Talmud says, hold on. None, <laughs> it's amazing. None is richer than the swine. It says the pig is, has it all. It's actually a similar understanding as the serpent that I mentioned before, which is why I talked about the serpent, just to kind of set the stage. It says that none is richer than the swine. This comes from Tractate Shabbat, page 155b. Why? Because what does it want? It wants to wallow in the mud. It wants to, you know, eat whatever it eats. And it's right there. It has whatever it needs. It's right around it. It's, it's literally just in its, its, um, it's in its element. That's what I'm looking for. That's the phrase I'm looking for. It's in its element. So nothing is as content. Nothing is as rich. Nothing is, and I, and I added this word happy because it's all, it's all connected. Not on some level. None is happy, as happy as the swine. It has whatever it wants, it has right there. But as we've been saying today, that doesn't actually equal happiness. It might appear happy, but that's not real happiness. Alex, jump in. Yeah, thank you. Um, sure. It was a, a, a while back, um, you, you talked about, this goes to holiness and thirst. Yes. And, oh, uh, good. A while back, you, met, you talked about how a tzaddik lives in a state of love sickness. Yes. Which, in a way, it reminds me of the thirst to an extreme degree. Yes, and yes. I'm beginning, as you're speaking, to understand that the love sickness is because at the same... It's an extreme form of thirst where the yearning is to be at one with Hashem. And yet, you can't quite get there. Right. And then it occurred to me that there could even be a state beyond lovesickness, which is actually could speak to the departure of the tzaddik, where the, the, the lovesickness is so strong that the next desire then is to essentially die, to leave this world, and to be a one, and and can you speak to that? And and are there stories of that happening? Yeah. So so um, you so you mentioned two points. So let me let me let me address those two points. So number one, the idea of love sickness, which is actually a phrase that we find in in the book of Psalms. King David writes cholat ahava. He writes about being sick with love or being love sick in his reference to his relationship with God. And that's exactly aligning with, with the idea today, which is that spiritually, it's a yearning for something, for a connection that one does not have and really that one can never really achieve in this state of existential separation. Because in, in, by definition, being here means that we're not part of the source or we're at least not obviously part of the source. Of course, the source is everywhere, um, as Kabbalah explains, but we're not 
in an obvious way part of the source. And so the yearning, the natural yearning of the soul is for that, which keeps the soul's flame burning. Now, is there a state where the soul could yearn so much to get to its source that it actually leaps out of the body? Yes, and that has happened. And, and the famous biblical story are the two sons of Aaron, which again, we've spoken about on other occasions, Nadav and Avihu who on the day that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was inaugurated, which was just a little under a year after the Exodus, it says that they, their lives were, were taken um, on that day. And there's a lot of commentary, there are a lot of commentaries that explain what, what happened. Some say they were intoxicated, some say they went to the Holy of Holies, and Kabbalah says, yes, they were intoxicated with a yearning for God. They were drunk with love with God and they entered the holy of holiest spaces so it, 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 within themselves. They, 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 they were in such a fierce state of, of, of desire, desiring that reconnection to source that their bodies simply could not hold their souls back and the souls le- leapt out of their bodies. It's called in Kabbalah, Kalot HaNefesh, which is when the soul leaps out of the body. Does it happen frequently? No. I mean, death is, is an inevitability, at least in our current state of being, which we've discussed today, um, which is separation of body and soul. But does it happen due to the fierce, desi- typically, to the fierce desire of the soul to leave the body and it just overwhelms the body's ability to hold it back? Typically, it doesn't happen. It happens when the body is weakened to the point that it can no longer hold the soul. But it typically doesn't happen when the soul's yearning is, and thirst is so powerful that it basically overwhelms the body and jumps, and jumps out. That's very rare, and, you know, it's a very exclusive case. Kabbalah also counters by saying that although that's the thirst of the soul, that's not necessarily the ideal of where the soul should be, because as long as God wants the soul down here, it has a mission, even though it thirsts to be above. So I hope that kind of addresses the points that you raised. But yeah, at the core, this idea of, of, of spiritual lovesickness is exactly what we're talking about. The idea of contentment is, again, it's, in Kabbalah, it's, it's, it's aligned with the side of unholiness. Holiness is associated with a yearning, uh, a desire for something that one can't quite reach. It's, it's a yearning for something beyond and above one's reach. Whereas unholiness is like none is as richer as the none is as rich as the swine, right? The chazer, the pig, has whatever it wants. It's 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 happy, go lucky. It's it. It's got it. But that's unholiness. So what we're going to do now is we're going to jump inside the text. And we're going to read. Um, we're going to read chapter two of discourse number six. And in doing so, we're going to contrast, hopefully clearly, we're going to contrast holiness and unholiness. In the language of Kabbalah, Kedusha, which is holiness, and Klipa, which literally means shell, but it's a euphemism for that which is unholy. So Kedusha and Klipa, holiness and the shell, or Kedusha and Sitra Achra, Kedusha holiness, and the other side, again, other side being a euphemism for that which is unholy. And the difference is, the core idea that we're going to establish here is, 
that holiness is thirsty for something higher and unholiness is very satisfied, is very rich, is very happy with all the stuff right here. Again, I just want to clarify that point. As it stands in our plane of existence, right here in this physical world, that which is holy, like the soul, which Alex just mentioned, but at that, that which is holy desires something that it doesn't have here in an obvious way. It desires something higher. It desires God. It thirsts and it yearns for God. And as it stands here, that which is unholy, like the body, doesn't mean evil, by the way, just not holy. The body and the animal soul, they're very content because all that they seek is all around, right? All that the body or that the, the lower self seeks, it's all here. The higher self, what it wants, it's not immediately here. You have to look for it. You have to seek it out. And even what you find here, the spiritual light that we find is still not in that most obvious sense, you know, the way it is in the source. And there's still ultimately a yearning beyond which it can, beyond where it stands now. Does that make sense what I'm saying right now? Yes, holiness, unholiness. Okay, so let's jump inside. I'm going to share my screen. We'll do this together. And I will read chapter two. Thirsty Malchut, thirsty soul. So as it is with the human being that there's a soul and a body, so too there is with the universe a soul and a body. Malchut is the soul of the universe and the body is, of course, the universe itself. And what we're saying here is that, oh, sorry, what we said last time, what we said last week is that Malchut, right, which I'm highlighting right there, Malchut is, sorry, descends into this world to give it life, like a soul to a body for a higher purpose. It can give light, it, it, sorry, it gives life to this world, and this world, its darkness can be transformed to light, and it's, it's, it's unholiness to holiness, and that reveals, that, 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 that unleashes the greatest spiritual force. Like, I, like last week's class was called, I guess we're doing animals lately, talking birds, right? It was all about how a bird begins to talk, how this world begins to shine. And that's something remarkable that happens because of Malchut. However, let's jump, let's jump into the text. However, in other words, despite the upside, despite the fact that this descent of Malchut into the world or the soul into the body or the cosmic soul into the cosmos, despite the fact that it's divinely intended and it leads to, you know, something great. However, at present, the bottom line is the sphere, the energy of Malchut is thirsty. And that's the word that we're speaking about today. Thirsty, it's yearning, it's restless, it's hungry, it's, it's like fire, it's burning. Why? Because of its descent and investment into the worlds of Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya, known by the acronym Bia. So because of Malchut's descent and investment into these lower three worlds, of which we are the lowest, it is thus, and I added the word thus, it is, therefore, thus in a state of thirst, longing to rise from its lowly state to be united with its source. So yes, this cosmic soul was sent down into our realities. 
in order to provide us life and give us the opportunity to do amazing things and create transformation here on earth and, and make this world a home for God. All of that is true and all of that is amazing. However, there's always a but. But, Malchut itself is thirsty. Malchut itself is restless. Malchut itself yearns and longs and seeks its source. All it wants is that reunion with its source. Look at this. Uh, as if on cue. The same is true of souls. That means human souls. Like it's true with Malchut, which is the cosmic soul of the universe. The same is true with souls, individual souls, my soul and your soul. To inhabit the body, an animal soul, right? Remember, the godly soul comes down into a body. We know what that is. And an animal soul, that means a competing drive that we have inside that schleps us down into lower activities. So to inhabit the body, an animal soul, the soul, the godly soul, descends from the plane it was before entering the body. And what, and what type of plane of existence was it? There, it was in a state of the ultimate spirituality, utterly removed from any self-awareness and corporeality whatsoever. Look at that, utterly removed from any self-awareness. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like Eden. It sounds like paradise. It sounds like Adam and Eve, state of flow. It was the soul above before it came down into this body into my body, into your body. Before your soul came down into your body, it was, sur not surrendered, it was um, subsumed, not even subsumed, it was dissolved, that's a better word. It was dissolved in a state of oneness with its source. It had no self-awareness. Your soul did not see itself as a soul. It was part of God. It was in the flow, in the spiritual flow. It wasn't, oh, I'm my own soul kind of hanging out near God. No, that's two things. It was one thing. It was all oneness. There was no self-awareness. There was obviously no corporeality. That means there was no physical, physical stuff at all whatsoever. And the soul above was incapable of becoming corrupted to be the antithesis of godliness. It could never turn against God. Okay, well, however, things have changed, right? However, upon entering the body, even while performing its aforementioned service of humbling the gross matter and nullifying existence, in other words, even if the godly soul is doing its job in a fantastic way, the, the godly soul is really, really achieving what it's meant to be doing and it's accomplishing, even if that's the case. Even if it's really getting things done spiritually, nonetheless. Nonetheless, it is related to existence and the physical. And what that means related, it means it's not related like, you know, family relations. It means um, it's karov. It is, um, I don't know what, the, what a good English word for this is. It is, it has a kinship. It has a familiarity with 
material existence and the physical. After all, the soul as it exists below is actually clothed in an animal soul, right? The soul has, has descended far, far, far below where it was. The soul was a piece of God. It didn't have it, its own awareness. It didn't have its own existence as a unique soul. And then it was separated out and made to be a unique soul. Ah, it's the, it's the formation of a soul that can be called soul as opposed to source. And then it's sent down below into a body with an animal soul. It's very different. Even if it's accomplishing its mission, it's very different than, than the way it was before. Its activities now are on a physical plane. Listen to this. Its intellectual activity is in physical matters which were alien to it before it was involved with the body. At that time, its intellect and comprehension were the ultimate of spirituality and abstraction. Think about, think about this. Think about how the soul above, you know, it's hard, it's hard for us to imagine what a soul, a disembodied soul is like. Like, what does a soul look like? What is it, what is it like? Does it think? Does it do? Like, what, what, what's going on with the soul without a body? The way he describes it here is, first of all, it's part of God. And even if it has any sort of, you know, awareness, its awareness is completely spiritual and abstract. It's on a completely different level than, than our understanding below. Its subjects, the subjects that it, it, that it comprehended, were spiritual and refined. Physical matters. And by this, the author says, I mean even intellectual matters that involved material things were unknown to it. So not just did it not know of physical things, but it didn't know even of intellectual things that involve material things. However, upon descent into the body, its comprehension became materialized as it were. It now understands physical concepts. Again, there's two things that are being mentioned here, and it's very important that I, I'm, I'm going to finish the paragraph, but then I want to go back and clarify something, a point that he's making, which I'll, I'll get back to in a second. So upon descent into the body, its, its comprehension now became materialized as it were. It now understands physical concepts. This results from its embodiment in the natural animal soul. The general effect is that the soul now is related. Again, that word related. It has, it's close to material existence and to physical affairs, a relationship that did not exist at all earlier. It is so involved now with the material world that it is susceptible to true descent, to corruption, God forbid. Not saying that it will become corrupted, but it could become corrupted. So I'm going to stop sharing for a moment and, and try to emphasize the, the two points that he's making. And I'm going to, let's, let's just talk about how things are below for the soul. We'll, we'll go back up um, soon. I don't mean that literally. I mean that uh, in our discussion. But the way it is down here, number one, two points. Number one, the soul understands physical things. It understands a piece of sushi. It understands a table. It understands a house. It understands a tree. It understands a sun. Even a spiritual, a godly soul has an understanding of the physical universe. And that's a big descent. That's, a, that's new for the soul. The soul had no awareness, comprehension of, connection to, relation to anything physical as it was above. But there's, a, there's, there's another point, and I believe... It's, it's an even bigger change. And hear me out for a second. 
even the spiritual things that it now does still understand, it contextualizes them through a material way of understanding. Does that make sense? It's like, think about how your godly soul understands Kabbalah here, right below. Through physical analogies and physical examples, we gave, I gave the example before of like, you know, the f- flow or out of flow, and I used a very imperfect example of, you know, speakers, um, audio speakers and, and cables that connect them, and the cables, if, they're, if the cables are free of interference, the audio flows nicely. If it has interference, the audio flows in a disjointed or disconnected way. So that helps our minds that helps even our souls understand God. In other words, the way the soul below understands God is through a more concrete way of understanding. And that's a, that's a really big fall from the way the soul was above. Above, it didn't need analogies to understand God. It didn't need physical, oh, you know what it's like? It's like a refrigerator and a plug. No, the soul above doesn't know refrigerators and doesn't need to understand God through a medium of refrigerators, electricity, and plugs. Doesn't need that. You with me on the two different distinctions? So the soul didn't understand, didn't have a a reference to physical things and didn't need and didn't contextualize spirituality in physical terms. Below the way our souls are here in the here and now, number one, it does understand the physical. And number two, even the spiritual is contextualized through the physical. It's almost like you can't get away from the physical getting in, getting in the way or interrupting in the connection that we have with our spirituality. It's almost like as, far, as, as much as we're trying to have a pure connection, we can't break through that wall. We can't break through that, that barrier of material and physical existence that essentially tells us, understand this and frame it in physical material terms. And we have trouble getting out of that. Okay, so this is the state, all of this he's describing, the state of affairs for the soul below. And the reason why he's describing this in such great detail is to set up our, our, to kind of draw us in emotionally and understand how, and, and start feeling how the soul, our souls must feel below. Trapped, if as it were, in a foreign environment, away from its source, in a radically different and altered state of being than it was. Can you imagine how frustrating that is for the soul? Can you imagine how suffocating it might feel for the soul? But really what we're getting to is, can you imagine how thirsty the soul is? Can you imagine how much the soul yearns to be reconnected, to have that pure connection as it once had? That's the restlessness of the soul as it exists below. All right, back inside. I'm going to share my screen with you. Once again, here we go. The descent of the soul brings about an intense thirst to rise, to merge with the above. Look at this. Nor did this thirst exist before. This is exactly what we said about Eden. The upside is there was flow. The downside is there wasn't thirst. The soul above, yes, it was pure. But you know what the upside is? 
The upside is that when the soul comes down here, it now, it, it's alive. It's alive. In that thirst, it lives. That thirst comes only as a result of the descent into the mundane. Listen to this. The intensity of the surge and thirst is directly caused. Whoops. Let me try that again. The intensity of the surge and thirst is directly caused by the descent into the physical body and animal soul. The lower it falls, the soul, the lower it descends, the thirstier it gets. There's two ways to look at the thirst. It could be representative of all that's wrong, or it could be representative of all that's right. You with me in kind of these two ways of understanding it? The thirst could be like, oh, the soul is in such a terrible place. Terrible predict. She's crying out for the source. Oh, it's so terrible. Okay, and that's true-ish. But here's, he's not going there. It's not a pity party for the soul. He's saying, look at the soul. Look at how, look at how alive it is. Look at how thirsty it is. It's an intensity, an intense thirst to rise. You know what's not intense? The swine, who has everything that it wants. Where's the intensity? There's a contentment, not an intensity. But where is life? Life is found in the intensity. Life, vitality, energy is found in the intense thirst. It's not found in contentment and complacency. I know, I know. Who doesn't want to be content and complacent? It sounds great. But, I, but, but here's the secret of Kabbalah. One of the secrets. Life, life is lived in those spaces of intensity and thirst and yearning. Life exists in the thrill. That's what we call it living, right? Living, not existing. Living is when we're challenged, is when, we're th when there's a thrill. And when does the soul gain the gift of the thirst? It's when it comes down into the mundane. The intensity is directly proportionate and caused by its descent into a physical body and animal soul. Now, this one more sentence, right, for this, for this little section. This applies to Malchut. Remember what Malchut is? Malchut is the lowest of the spherot, but it is, generally speaking in this context, it is the divine energy that forms or that serves as the soul of the universe. So there's the microcosm and the macrocosm. So the individual and the universal. So on an individual level, it's my soul and my body and my soul's thirst for the source. Okay. But on a cosmic level, the energy, I'm just kind of looking out my window here, like at the sun or not directly, but right. So the, the cosmic energy of the universe, right, is Malchut. It's the Shekhinah, divine presence. And it also develops a thirst for its source, which is same God, right? Its source, its thirst, it develops it by coming into these lower planes of existence. So let's read this inside. This applies to Malchut as well. Its own descent into Biyah, into the worlds of, again, Biyah is an acronym for Berea, Yetzira, Asiya. The world of creation, formation, and action. We're in the A, we're in the lower part of the A, that little, that little piece at the 
and at the right side. Anyway, so Biyah. So its descent into Biyah causes its thirst to ascend ever higher. None of this is a negative. It's not a liability. None of this is a liability, by the way. It's all a good thing. Remember, God gave us a gift of freedom that night of the Exodus. And he said, the gift of freedom is to be found in the roast. Okay, well, I'm paraphrasing. But in the fire, that's where the freedom is. In the intensity, that's where, that's where life is lived. That's where you're really free. That's when you're not stifled. Is when you're yearning. When there's... You ever go golfing? Yeah. I've gone golfing a few times, right? So, you ever go golf? Right, so they don't put the hole right, right where you start. You would think if the objective is to get into the hole, why don't they put the hole a little closer? Because it's not about getting into the hole. I mean, ultimately it is. That's me talking who probably can't get. No, but it's, it's, about, it's about the striving. It's about the yearning. It's about, and when you get into the hole, you know what you do? You tee up for the next one, right? It's not about arriving. Oh, I got it in. We're good. No, complacency is no fun. Right? It's striving, it's thirst, it's yearning. Okay. There you go. Exactly. We're always moving, always creating. By the way, this is why we just celebrated Shavuot, the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. That's why Torah was given on a mountain. Right? The message is, and God says to Moses, climb the mountain. You ever wonder why people climb mountains in the first place? You know why? Because they're there. That's why we climb mountains, because it's there. It's like, because we want to set challenges for ourselves. And in the process, we live. I'm not, only, I'm not saying only mountain climbers are living, but you're with me where we are. Okay, let's get back inside. I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump back in to our text. Okay, let's contrast this with the animal soul and the body and all that stuff. Sated animal. So the soul is thirsty. What about the, the godly soul? What about the animal soul? Sated, that means satisfied, refers to man's desire to satisfy his physical lusts. While he has no desire or thirst for godliness. I, it doesn't mean that a person would... Ne- he just means focusing on the physical, not the spiritual for a moment. Right? The physical desires... Although we're literally calling them desires, but he's saying they're not thirsty desires. They're not really thirsty because they're right here, right? His longing, his passion are primarily in in this, again, in this example, we're, we're now away from the spiritual, we're now into the physical. So a person who is focused on the physical part, so his, this person's longing, passions, etc., are primarily for physical delights and these quench his thirst. So there's a reason why the animal soul is not called thirsty. It's called sated. Number one, because what does it desire? It desires physical things. And by and large, there's an app for that. You can get that, right? The godly soul wants God. Good luck. I mean, as long as, I mean, Alex said, right, can can the soul jump out? Yes. But as long as it's here, it's going to remain thirsty. But the physical drives that we have, the animal soul, you want something, you can probably get it. You don't have to go thirsty for that long. Are you with me in what he's saying on a very practical level? Yeah, on a very practical level, the thirst of the animal soul, yeah, it wants also, 
but it's much easier to get and it's, it's, it's attainable. It's attainable, right? So his longing, his passion are primarily physical delights and these quench his thirst. And others, you have it. Oh, you got it. In addition, these desires can more readily be satisfied because they are at hand. While the longing of the godly soul is for godliness and it will not be content, God forbid, with bodily pleasure. So the godly soul, you give the, the godly soul is, is restless. It's thirsty. It's, it's, and you give it chocolate cake. The godly soul says, chocolate cake? Who wants chocolate cake? <laughs> I want God. What do you give me a chocolate cake? All right, how about sushi? I don't want sushi. How about a movie? I don't want a movie. I want God, right? So the godly soul is not going to be content with stuff of this world, with bodily pleasure. Therefore, again, back to the godly soul, it is in a state of thirst, in its descent. And it remains in that state constantly. Well, I mean, until, until the soul is no longer here. But as long as the soul is here, it remains constantly in a state of thirst, unable to quench its thirst. You know why it's unable? That's a strong word, unable. What, I mean, the soul can't study Torah, do a mitzvah? Of course it can. Of course it can. And those give it a taste of what it wants. But what, is, what does quenching its thirst really mean? It means becoming dissolved back into its source. And as long as it's here, it's unable to quench its thirst fully. This is because the presence of God is not truly revealed at present. In other words, the soul cannot fully dissolve into, into the source. At best, we can attain knowledge of his existence. In other words, at, at, the, at the best, we can know that God exists, but not fully dissolve into that. And not comprehension of his nature. We know this is a, in, in Kabbalah, this is called Yediyas HaMetzias versus Hasagas HaMohos. We know that he exists. We might know that he exists, but to know what he is, and how he is, and who he is, and have that intimate connection with God, we can't have it on this plane of existence. Oh, what, when will we have that, he says? When Mashiach comes in the Messianic era, only in the future, that means the Messianic time, will the prophecy be fulfilled, quote, your teacher will no more be hidden. Your teacher is referring to God, right? It's a euphemism for God. Your teacher, that's why it has a capital T. Your teacher, God, will no longer be hidden. For, his, for God's true nature will be revealed then. So when Mashiach comes, you can live here on earth and be fully dissolved in source. But as now, but now, but for now, this nature, this full nature of divine is not revealed. So the soul is in a constant state of thirst. Okay, so we've, I think we've done a pretty good job of establishing why the soul is thirsty. Well, first of all, what thirsty means. Thirsty means simply that that a thing is in a state of desire. It's in a state of discontentment. It's in a state of yearning. It's in a fervor, fervored state of wanting something that it does not have. The divine soul, the godly soul, is always in that state because it always wants what it cannot have. Here, it wants an open, full, awareness, complete awareness and connection with God, and it cannot, it won't be able to achieve that here until Mashiach comes. So that's why the godly soul is in a state of thirst and yearning. However, now we get to, this, to the swine. 
Here we go, this last paragraph. And this is where we're going to close it out today. However, the animal soul, which is the lower self, cares and wishes only for physical satisfactions. And these quench its thirst. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't remain in a perpetual state of thirst. It quenches, it, it has its thirst quenched because it wants physical satisfactions. Their very availability makes the satisfaction of the animal soul's desires a simple matter. Look at that line. The very, their very availability makes the satisfaction of the animal soul's desires a simple matter. In other words, it takes away from the depth of the thirst. If you know that it can be satisfied and, you've, and you can satisfy it and you do satisfy it, the depth of the thirst is erased. Similar to our sage's remark, again, this is what I mentioned before and, and in the email, none is richer than the swine, for its food is waste. It, it likes the stuff that's, that it's rolling around in, similar to what I said about the serpent. Always at hand, easy to get, and satisfying. Look at that, by the way. What a great tagline for a commercial, right? Swine food, always at hand, easy to get, and fully satisfying. And it sounds great, but you know what? That erases the thirst. That erases the thirst. It makes the satisfaction of the animal soul's desires a simple matter. It makes it almost too easy. And when it's too easy, it doesn't have the depth to it. It is so back inside. It is so just like it is with the swine. It is exactly so with bodily pleasures, for they are the byproducts. Oh, look at this. It's like the waste. You know what waste is? Waste is like the, the byproduct of the body. So it, the same thing is with bodily pleasures. They are the byproducts of spiritual pleasures. In other words, the real pleasure is spiritual pleasure. Physical pleasure is like, I don't want to use any, um, any coarse language. It's the byproduct. It's the waste. I'll just say that word waste of spiritual pleasure. And thus they are readily available and satisfying to the animal soul. Therefore, the animal soul is called sated. So the animal soul is satisfied. Lower pleasures, lower desires, at hand, even if it doesn't have it, it knows it could have it, and then it does have it, and it is satisfied. And yes, the animal soul craves again, and it craves again, and it, you know, it, it doesn't give up, and it keeps on pushing. But by and large, the animal soul, its cravings are fulfilled. And it's no longer thirsty. What about the godly soul? It's thirsty. The godly soul is perpetually in a state of thirst because what it wants, it can't get here. But that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because there's a, the fire keeps on burning. By the way, I'll mention this also with regard to relationships. There's something beautiful about a relationship in which there's still some magic. There's still some hiddenness, if you will in the relationship, and there's something still to explore and to discover. And, and I don't mean keeping secrets from one another, but I mean there's something, you know, there's still a thirst and a desire. There's still something mysterious about the other. Are you with me on that? There's still a mystery to solve or to never solve, but something about the other person that's magnetic, that draws, that, 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 that draws us to the other, that creates a passion and a burning and a fire. When we feel like that's it, we've, we've hit the end of discovery, complacency, 
But complacency, as we've said today, complacency means not being alive. And who wants that? Especially in a relationship, right? We don't want to ever hit that place where it's no longer alive. It's meant to be vibrant. It's meant to be passionate. It's meant to be beautiful, alive. So let's, uh, let's um, conclude and, and maybe bring out a few final messages. Number one, the Garden of Eden was a beautiful space. We were completely in the flow, and there's something beautiful about that. The sin took us out of that state of flow. But because of that, because there's always something positive, even from a negative, the, the upside of that, the, the benefit of being knocked out of flow is that now we can desire to get back. <laughs> is that we, can, we have something to yearn for. We have something to live for. Because as we've said today, life is really lived in those states, in those areas in which we're longing and craving and desiring and thirsting and pursuing. When we arrive, I mean, you, we know this. The anticipation is always better than actually getting there, right? Than actually being there, right? Getting there is always better than being there. So the godly soul is always in that state of thirst. And that's holiness, at least the way it's translated here below. Above, it might be flow. But below, holiness is defined by the yearning. Because the animal soul, it's also hungry and thirsty, but it doesn't stay thirsty for long. It satisfies, and then it gets bored. And then... But we don't need to focus on that. Let's, in our lives... Let's take today's message and let's always be restless in a good way. Always seek new challenges. Always seek to better the world around us. Never be complacent. Never, God forbid, give up and say, well, I guess this is the best it's going to be. We should always make sure that the goal is further than where we are right now. And strive to get to that goal. And if we do achieve that goal, then it's time to set a new goal. That's why, and I'll end with this point, that's why it's a mitzvah to remember the exodus every single day. Because, and the message is, God is telling us, I want you to live today. Not just live yesterday. I want you to live today. And today, what it means to be alive is to keep on yearning, to keep the fire burning. Just because it burned yesterday doesn't mean it's going to burn today. And if yesterday's fire, if yesterday's challenge was achieved and you wake up today and there's no more challenge, maybe you won't want to get out of bed. Every day we need a new challenge. And I know and you know there, there are many, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. A lot of work in the world that needs to be done. So there's plenty to keep us busy and to keep us thirsty and to keep us working really hard. May we never stop working. May we never give up hope. May we always have our eyes on the goal. And may we keep on living with fire. Thank you very much for joining me today for Sunday Morning Kabbalah and Coffee. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it's helped you start the week with, uh, with some fire and intensity and passion. And may this week be a week of uh, tremendous Tremendous accomplishment, productivity, passion, and living. 
All right, it's great to see you all. David and Mariana and Donna and Alex and Beverly and Marsha and Tony and Toba and Joy and Fran and looks like we got Sandrine. Hey, Sandrine, welcome. Um, I should mention a few things, a few local things in Atlanta. So number one, today, this afternoon, I believe starting at four o'clock, there is a, let me look this up quickly. There is a rally, a solidarity with Israel rally at 4 p.m. And it's taking place today in Atlanta at the Federation Building, 1100 Spring Street Northwest. So it's, uh, it's going to be a, a peaceful, obviously peaceful and positive and productive um, uh, opportunity of Jewish unity and, and connectedness and, and, and collective spirit, solidarity with Israel today, 4 p.m. here in Atlanta at the Federation Building. Okay, so that's one announcement. Another announcement on a, a bit of a different energy. We have the, um, thank you, Mariana. We have our first, um, we have our first ever, first annual and first ever Jewish Summer Cinema, where we are having Jewish films and watching them um, uh, be behind our building, right near the Beltline, beautiful Jewish films. We have tonight, the film is called Heading Home. It's a fun film. We'll have a barbecue and, and great food. Followed by the film, it all starts tonight at 7.30. So join us for that, for an evening of positivity. It's also really about Israel as well. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a great documentary. It's a lot of fun, and it's meaningful as well. So join us tonight at 7.30 for that. Okay, that Donna, yes. Is that bring your own chair? You don't, I mean, you don't have to. It's, if, you, if you want to, we'll have chairs. I, I know what we wrote on the, on the marketing stuff, bring your own chair. Don't don't have to stress about that because we have we have plenty of chairs. I'm gonna have chairs set up, so we probably should 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 amend that to say if you want to bring your own chair, you can bring your own chair. But we have uh, you know we have we have chairs as well. Um, okay, great. It's great to see you all. I want to wish you all. Oh, uh, another quick announcement. Tomorrow night we're we're starting our Hebrew course, which is for um, for Hebrew reading. So. If you've never learned how to read Hebrew, or if you've learned but you want to get a little bit uh, quicker on it and a little bit more proficient in it, um, then this is the course for you. It's going to start with the, with the fundamentals and then build efficiency and proficiency. So join us tomorrow night starting at 8. It's going to be online, uh, Zoom, Hebrew course, uh, yeah, tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So join us for that. Okay, um, I think that's it. We have classes Tuesday night and Wednesday night, and Rosh Chodesh, Leah is going to teach Rosh Chodesh Thursday night, so we get all sorts of good stuff. Um, okay, Shavua Tov, everyone. Have a wonderful week. All right, we'll see you all. Pleasure, pleasure. My, my best to Alex. All right, we'll see you soon. Take care. All right, bye, everybody.